Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to the October 31st edition of Week to Week, the political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club of California. Um, I'm John Zipper, by the way. I'm the uh, host for Week to Week and I'm the club's vice president of media and editorial or the Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California Vice President of the Editorial. And I'm so glad you all joined Melissa, John, and me here tonight. Um, I know you're really doing this because you're avoiding the trick-or-treaters. Smart move. <laughs> this is so much better than, like, keeping the lights off and not answering the door. And, um, you'll have your own chance to win some chocolate later in the day, but in the, at the end of the hour. But first, we have a lot of local, state, and national politics to discuss. So let's quickly meet our panelists and then we'll get into this. Right next to me is Melissa Kane. You know her as the host of the Get Out the Bet podcast. She's also a political analyst and attorney. Welcome back, Melissa. I live here. (laughs) (laughs) And rejoining us after far too long is John F. Rothman. He's the host of the Around the Political World podcast, longtime KGO host, and the only week-to-week political roundtable panelist who actually worked for Richard Nixon. So welcome back. <laughs> so let's start with the biggest headlines that we're all seeing, and that is, of course, the, the war in, in uh, Israel, or the war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. Um, we are not an international relations or international affairs program, uh, so we won't get into the details of that and the strategy of that, but and because, of course, that's being hashed and rehashed everywhere else on, on talk radio and everything. If talk radio exists. Talk anymore, radio. You remember that? We used yeah, to have it here in San Francisco. <laughs> and talk TV. Um, but I do think what's happening here in the United States in terms of the political divisions that are being uh, kind of made very evident by this um, and what's happening on campuses and, and elsewhere um, is worth getting into. So um, I wanted to start with uh, what we're seeing where a number of Democratic uh, politicians have either denounced or withdrawn from the Democratic Socialists of America over DSA's involvement in some pro-Palestinian protests, some of which included explicit support for Hamas uh, in defense of what they were doing. Um, Also on the far left, uh, you might not know this, I now live in Chicago, so I I noticed that Black Lives Matter Chicago, uh, which says they're not affiliated with Black Lives Matter nationally, but uh, uh, they posted support on social media specifically highlighting the gliders that Hamas fighters use to infiltrate Israeli communities and slaughter people there. So um, it's what we're seeing in a number of places is kind of this division where I think a fair number, and I was going to say a fair number of liberals and Democrats, but obviously certainly Jewish liberals and Jewish Democrats who maybe even have been supportive of uh, DSA and others in the past are like, oh my goodness, I did not believe that's where we were here. I mean, I did not believe that was actually part of this broad coalition. Um, I'm going to start with you, John, because I, I know you've talked about this on your, your podcast. What do you make of this? this growth? And it, it, it's, it's a pretty strong generational difference within the Democratic coalition. Let me begin by saying that uh, the most shocking thing to me is not that there was a war. Uh, that was predictable. What's shocking are the implications in this country. And I'm going to call it for what it is. Some people call it anti-Semitism. I call it Jew hatred. And I can tell you that there is no doubt 
and all you have to do is listen to the media, left or right, to see the ramifications and understand that Jews in America are terribly concerned, and with good reason. You know, when they say, when they chant, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Well, the river is the Jordan, and the sea is the Mediterranean, and what's in the middle is Israel. I have to tell you that, John, you did a wonderful thing. You couched this as a conflict between Israel and Hamas. Hamas's covenant is very clear. Article 7 says, it quotes from the Haditha, if a Jew should hide behind a rock or a tree, let the rock or the tree cry out, there is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. It doesn't say Israeli. It says Jew. And so what we need to understand is in order for there to be peace, there has to be a recognition that this is Jew hatred. And all you have to do, my friends, is listen to the rallying cry in the rallies held here or in Europe and to understand, and I underline this and emphasize it, the tremendous insecurity that is now felt by Jews around the world and, yes, right here in San Francisco. Melissa, um, a lecturer at Stanford, you might have seen this story, uh, separated Jewish students in the class. According to CNN, quote, students said the instructor tried to justify the actions of Hamas and asked the students how many Jews were killed in the Holocaust. After one student answered six million, the instructor said more people have been killed by colonizers and, quote, Israel is a colonizer, unquote. Um, and he, and the, this instructor has been, I guess, taken out of the classroom, I don't know uh, what they're, I don't know if they can fire the person or what, but um, politically, what does this mean? What, what, how does this kind of, you know, so often politics is, is kind of a, an act of, gloss, not glossing over, but finding ways to bring together groups, either just to get something done or to tamp down expectations. We're finding some really raw um, uh, views and People are getting these experiences. I mean, I, I live right near a big synagogue that has 24-hour security now that they did not have a month ago. Um, so what are you seeing and what do you think? Well, it, it has been there. I think what people are seeing is something that's being revealed. I remember being at the Women's March back in 2016, the day after Donald Trump was sworn in as president. And there's a stage and there are all these wonderful luminaries up there talking about um, women and women's rights. And of course, you know, you can you could talk about that with regard to, you know, other kinds of rights, other kinds of oppressed people. And there was a whole um, sort of skirmish about whether or not and to what extent folks were going to get up and say things that appeared to be anti-Semitic. And, um, and so even then, right, even in this moment at this march, there were these, there were folks who sort of from appearances seemed to be on the same side of something, but there, there was this sort of rumbling in there. And what I think people are discovering is that this division that they sort of in an abstract way kind of thought was there um, is, it, it exists in a very deep and frightening kind of way. Um, whereas certain, you know, I'm reading about Jewish people who are saying, look, I, I actually support Palestinians and, and better treatment of them. But I, they thought, surely, surely this thing, watching this thing would, would, would engender support and sympathy. But, but the fact that it hasn't for, for some people is really 
sort of shaking a, a number of people. And so you see them saying things like, I've been a Democrat my whole life. I'm thinking about being a Republican or I'm not I'm no longer going to be part of this DSA or I'm no longer going to support BLM, which had a lot of Jewish support. It seems like from what I'm at least you know, sort of reading about there, there were a number of Jewish people who were supporting those kind of organizations who were saying, absolutely not. No more, no, no more to supporting, you know, trustees and other sort of leaders at, at, at universities. So whether or not this, how this translates into actual voters, whether we get sort of a schism in, in the Democratic Party, whether folks go to the Republican Party, I mean, the Republicans haven't been sort of united in their response either. Um, and so, you know, for, for a Jewish person who's frightened by what they're seeing, um, it's, it's unclear sort of what, where the new, you know, sort of party and place is and whether it becomes down to a lot of like individuals, right? Because you have sort of Joe Biden who's saying one thing, but then other members of the Democratic Party are saying other things. And so, you know, you may just have to come down to individual opinions when you're in the voting booth and, and sort of where you can, where Jewish people might feel more comfortable going forward. Muslims in America are also reporting a rise in threats and harassment. And there was, of course, the shocking murder of a Palestinian boy in uh, suburban Chicago. His mother was also severely wounded in that, and their landlord is currently facing charges in the stabbings. Um, tinder <laughs> tinderbox is kind of the word that that strikes, you know, comes to my mind. It's like. Let's, again, try to keep it, I guess, in the political realm. If you're President Biden, what message, and who, has, who frankly, is more popular right now in Israel than he is in the United States, um, from what I read, he, his, you know, his visit there, people from the left and the right were just really uh, appreciative of it and, and, and praised something like two-thirds of the people watched. Yeah. Which is- yeah. And you have to realize, I've known Joe Biden uh, since the 1970s. And some of you will remember Tom Lantos, who was the congressman from this area. The first time, Tom, that I met him, really, was on the Frank Church campaign in 76. But then he worked for Tom, uh, for Joe Biden as his economic advisor. So when I was in Washington, I would go by Tom Lantos's office, uh, in Joe Biden's office, and Joe would walk in. Let me tell you, this is a guy who was committed to Israel, understood the issues, and I believe the Democratic Party is absolutely solid for Israel. I don't believe there's any, except for the, the, this small group of people. But I want to say a word about the Democratic Socialists. One of my close friends was Bayard Rustin, the great black civil rights leader who organized the March on Washington in 1963. And Bayard was a absolutely committed to Israel. He had, headed something called BASIC, Black Americans in Support of Israel. And he believed strongly that Israel had a right to exist. And may I be clear, it isn't that Palestinians don't have rights. What we have to remember is Palestinian rights cannot be gained at the expense of Israel's right to exist. And that to me is the key. And I would go even a step further and say that Hamas and its objectives are antithetical to anything you can talk about in terms of peace because their commitment is to the destruction of Israel. And may I say, they seem not to care much about their own people. And that's even more disturbing. Just, just because they put military sites underneath hospitals? Yes. Well, there was a, a today, uh, there was a hit by the Israelis on a major Palestinian refugee camp. Well, of course, where does Hamas characterize and create its environment? In the middle of civilian areas. And the question is, what, what can the Israelis do? Listen, this is a moral paradox. 
And I really want you to understand, I extend the deepest sympathy to the Palestinian people. I wish the Palestinian people would rise up and tell Hamas where to go. But I want to also indicate to you there is one other dimension that nobody talks about. Those of us who have favored a two-state solution over many, many decades, and I am one of them, now look to the fact that the polls, if you believe polls, indicate that if free elections were held on the West Bank, that Hamas would win. No Israeli government will ever permit a Palestinian state on the West Bank governed by Hamas. And I would remind you, the Palestinian Authority uh, was removed from Gaza. And do you know how they, they removed them after an election was held which Hamas won? They took the Palestinian Authority people, their own people, and threw them off the tall buildings in Gaza. And you can see it on YouTube. You can see the films. When you deal with such hate, and what we saw on October 7th was hate, the torture, the un... Do you know, for Jews, the recognition that more Jews died in one place on October the 7th than at any time since the Holocaust. And the deafening silence of too many people is what is profoundly disturbing. So this is a, a real conundrum, but it does, as you began this, John, it begins right here. And I'm glad you used the example of Stanford University. If you're a Jewish student today on a college or university campus, you're afraid. Look at what happened at Cornell. Look at what has happened. My niece, my niece goes to Tulane. And you all saw on television the recordings of what happened there. It is horrifying. And remember, this is the United States of America. One quick word about Joe Biden. His leadership in this area and the speech which he gave exemplify the best of the United States and the best in the Democratic Party. And the reassuring thing to me is I do not believe that support for Israel is a partisan issue. I think Republicans and Democrats can agree on that. We have a wing of the Democratic Party, a small group, which, by the way, the Republicans had. Do you all remember Pete McCloskey? I did a program here at the Commonwealth Club with Pete McCloskey. And some of you will remember uh, his extreme remark. And I don't, because I'm on oh, glad to hear. California. No, you, you had, you had in, in uh, Illinois a member of Congress, Paul Findlay, who was a close ally of Pete McCloskey's, who said the same sorts of thing. I am glad that those who oppose Israel are on extremes and that support for Israel in this country is bipartisan, it's deep, and it's wide. And may I just conclude by saying, it's not that what Israel does all the time is correct. It's not that everything they do is pure as the driven snow. But neither is everything the United States does pure as the driven snow. But we don't call for the destruction of the United States. We don't call for the obliteration of this country. And that's the distinct difference that needs to be made. Well, let's move on to uh, some destruction we're doing ourselves in this country, and that is the U.S. House of Representatives and their... Uh, that's a halfway decent segue, folks. Um, the, their interregnum that they had with the U.S. Speaker after an extremist uh, House member ousted former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Um, Melissa, who could possibly have expected that Kevin McCarthy's ingeniously crafted speakership would end in tears. <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, you know, it's, 
when you talk about the Republican Party and, and what's happening on this new uh, Mike Johnson person. Um, so one of the things, though, one of the things that we're seeing is one of his first moves is was to allow a proposal that would tie aid to Israel to a, a dramatic decrease in funding for the IRS. So we're going to we will, we will allow 16 billion in funding to Israel, but we want 16 billion in cuts from the IRS. And like, that's the package. Um, and that, you know, um, is less than full throated support for um, for aid to Israel when you're when you're sort of requiring that it come with these commensurate um, IRS cuts. And so we're already seeing, you know, some people sort of using it aid to Israel in, mm -hmm. in, in unique ways under Mr. Johnson's speakership. And so um, so it's even though there, there are things that people have said that have been supportive of Israel, you know, once you sort of get into the the machinations, it's we are looking less serious already than than maybe we should be. John, what do you think of uh, the new speaker? How can you elect Johnson's speaker? He is a man who is an election denier. Uh, and who not only is an election denier, but filed an amicus brief. And he, he wasn't even associated. It wasn't his state. This is a man who opposes gay marriage and gay rights. This is a man who opposes a woman's right to choose on any condition. And he is the representative of the Republican Party in the House of Representatives. If Joe Martin were alive, he'd be spinning in his grave. It's appalling. And yet... We have to recognize, and I say this as somebody who has been a Republican. I was a Republican for many years. I did work for Richard Nixon. I want you to know I go to synagogue every Yom Kippur and do an extra al and fast and fast for an extra hour. Uh, to think that the Republican Party has elected a person as speaker with those attributes is to me stunning. And I believe in a vital, vibrant two-party system. I believe there needs to be a Republican Party. Okay, it's not the Republican Party I grew up in, and I'm now proudly a Democrat, but I do believe very strongly that the elimination of Donald Trump and Donald Trump's insidious influence on the Republican Party is not only essential for the Republican Party, it's essential for the United States of America. We need a vital, vibrant two-party system. And what the Republicans are offering now, frankly, is just, a, just tragic. If you're not going to tell us what you think, I mean, there's really no point in us doing this. You know, I was a radio talk show host for a oh, better part you? of three decades. Really? Um, and that was one thing I never had a problem doing. <laughs> well, Melissa... Um, so not only do we have Johnson now, we of course went through a very either entertaining or enervating week or so where Jim Jordan was oh, making his attempt <laughs> to become a, a speaker. Why do you think he lost? I mean, he's he and Johnson are, are both very conservative. Was it about him or was it about his policies or his activities monitoring the gym back in high school? <laughs> What? <laughs> no, that was in college. <laughs> well, I mean, for, for this, the small group of what we might call normies um, in the Republican Party who were willing to vote against yeah. Jim Jordan and, and make sure he didn't become speaker, uh, you know, they were very angry about what happened to Kevin McCarthy. And so I think there was this need to sort of exert their control and say, this person, because Jim Jordan is just such a sort of a cartoon, larger than life 
And I don't mean, <laughs> I just mean he's, he's got a big personality and people know who he is. No one's ever heard of Mike Johnson. Um, and so he, you know, he's out there and they go, okay, well, we're, you know, you took sort of Kevin McCarthy away from us. Mm -hmm. We are going to prevent your guy. And then we all come to an agreement on this person who is sort of a, very much like Jim Jordan, but, um, but, but a little sort of less well-known, um, maybe sort of less colorful. Uh, and so I think it was really just sort of an exercise in showing them we can and sort of trying to force back to um, something a little less embarrassing for the, the sort of crew of about eight sort of more moderate. And, and it was the process of elimination. Mm -hmm. I think you hit it on the head, absolutely. Nobody had ever heard of the man who is now Speaker of the House of Representatives. And Jim Jordan is bigger than life. Steve Scalise, who really was the guy, the number two guy, mm -hmm. uh, should have been the logical person. But it goes to show you the Republican Party has to get its house in order. You know, Abraham Lincoln once said that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And what I've learned about the Republican Party is they are a house divided against itself. And may I express the completely partisan view that I hope they do not stand. <laughs> The, it's my understanding that uh, Speaker Johnson is operating under the same, what, structure or agreement that uh, McCarthy for now. did. What, yeah, for now. Which meant, means that, you know, it just takes one Republican uh, to declare, what is it, declare yeah, vacant. All they have to do is to challenge from the floor, and that Speaker can be derailed. Let me tell you, I was no fan of Kevin McCarthy at all. Uh, and uh, the fact that he achieved the Speakership... <gasps> by making compromises and promises to people that he could not possibly keep, ensured that Matt Gates or some other figure would stand up and challenge him. Uh, this speaker is different, and everyone has to understand, Johnson was the least likely, the least controversial, the most mainstream of the MAGA Republicans, and so he's Speaker of the House. Wait, do you realize? He is third, actually second, in line for the presidency. First the Vice President, then the Speaker of the House. Can you imagine if there were a national catastrophe? Oh, I'll tell you the catastrophe. If Johnson became president. <laughs> the only thing the Republicans would be able to do is pull out their old Johnson for president buttons. And I mean, <laughs> Lyndon, put them on. Magic marker, then first you, name. You got it. Um, Melissa, I mean, watching through all this, the, we've, see, we've seen the Democrats stay united, um, kind of sit back and let the Republicans kind of have their fights and their uh, debacle, if you will, publicly. Um, why are the Democrats that this? I mean, the Democrats were the party that for decades were known as the party that, you know, was a disorganized political party. And now suddenly they're the disciplined uh, party. Is this a, a legacy of Nancy Pelosi? Think so? Yes. Whoever said many of you who said Nancy Pelosi, yes, yes, and she's so, of course is still there. And I'm not saying she's a puppet master, but she's there to be a mentor and you know sort of provide. Not that Hakeem Jeffries necessarily needs it. He seems very competent. But look, it's easy to be um, you know in lockstep and in agreement when you're in the minority and you just don't have to do anything. Like, what's your job? Nothing to do. Nothing. Uh, I think there are serious divisions in the Democrats uh, within the Democratic Party, but um, but they were able to. to 
to stay united here. And in addition, I mean, Republicans also made it clear they would never vote for a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, why would you ever vote for a Republican? I mean, that was kind of what that would have required, right? right? You're going to need a handful of Democrats to come over and vote for a Scalise or someone. But you know how far we've come, just so you know this? In 1942, when the Speaker of the House of Representatives, 1940, I'm sorry, 1940, the Speaker of the House died, Sam Rayburn, who was a Democrat, was unanimously elected Speaker of the House because in those days there was bipartisanship and that does not exist today. I th yeah, and I think Speaker's had less power back then as well. Now that they appoint all the committees and they do a they lot. They didn't do that then? They do yes. a lot. That's that's evolved over time um, to, to a large degree. And well, and Willie Brown, who was Speaker of the Assembly right here in, in Sacramento with the support of Republicans um, uh, back in the 70s. So I mean, yeah, you, it certainly happens. I just mean today asking Democrats to cross over and vote for a Republican, which is what was going to require is yeah. just was just sort of a non-starter. But yeah, it is weird to see the Democrats who are usually the the gang that can't shoot straight sort of, you know, they're looking very competent and in agreement <laughs> next to what was happening with the uh, with the Republican Party. Yeah, they're usually kind of the, the bag of cats. Um, well, last thing on this then before we move on is uh, what we're kind of seeing with the the Senate Republicans led by Mitch McConnell and the House Republicans now led by Johnson. Big gap. McConnell is pushing and he's being kind of public in his criticism. Um, any sense of, of who wins that fight or do they, I mean, because the, as you put it, the normies Republicans have done an awful lot of just lying down and taking it. So after, after maybe some tough talk, uh, any predictions on what kind of the House and Senate part? are separate bodies. Right. They establish their own rules of conduct, 100%. Mitch McConnell is a problematic figure because, as you know, he has had some health issues, but he still seems to control the Republican conference. What I think is important to note is the total breakdown between Republicans in the House and Senate, and Melissa hit the nail on the head when she talked about the fact on the Ukraine and Israel situation. Mm -hmm. How does the Republican Party come together? And remember, there is a cloud hanging over all of the Republicans, and that is Donald Trump. And so this is a peculiar time. Uh, Adam Kinzinger has just written a book, mm -hmm. and Liz Cheney is writing a, uh, has written a book that will be out next right. month. Those are two Republicans, even though I disagreed with them on virtually every issue that I respected, I respected. Mm. But do I have respect for Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans? And to be blunt, you know, I'm very soft-spoken and have no particular opinions on anything. <laughs> but it's a shame. It's an American tragedy. And I really say that because, well, we have to have that. But you asked about the Congress uh, the House and the Senate Republicans are going to have to find a way to get together. I have not yet read the new book on Mitt Romney. Oh. But I understand from reading some of the uh, advanced publication stuff that he provides zinger after zinger after zinger. Uh, and one can only contemplate, and I, I supported Barack Obama, one can only contemplate if Mitt Romney had been elected president how the course of the history of the Republican Party would have been profoundly different. 
well, if he had said some of those zingers while he was campaigning, he might have been. <laughs> <laughs> but if he had, he never like, would have been nominated. Who knew? Was this interesting? <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, <laughs> um, no, the um, so the last time we had a situation where you had a group of uh, you know renegades, uh, they called them insurgents back in uh, the early 1920s. I'm trying to remember if it was 21 or 23. Um, that um, it was a, a group of Republicans who were sort of Midwest and La Follette Republicans. Robert La Follette, 1924, the Progressive Party candidate for president with a Democratic running mate, a man by the name of Burton K. Wheeler from Montana. Okay, so last time that happened was in the early 1920s and basically the way it was dealt with was back then, at least the insurgents were kicked out of the Republican Party. Um, but more importantly, in the next election, uh, a number of them lost their seats. And so it may be the case that we are sort of going to, you know, the Biden administration will have to move some finances around to try to provide some aid to Ukraine and Israel and basically just wait until until next year, essentially, until the primaries come around, to because because things are so entrenched, um, we may be in a sort of similar situation where you don't really get past the deadlock until uh, until we have another election, unfortunately. Okay, well, let's move on to our governor, who uh, went to China. Uh, it used to, who is it? He used to say only Nixon could go to China. Well, Newsom can go to China too. Um, he did a lot of talk about the trip. Um, also, a lot of questions like why did he go? So, Melissa. Why did Gavin Newsom go, and why did he go now? Is he running for president? Is this a shadow presidential debate uh, run? I mean, if he were running for president, yes. how would he act differently? <laughs> I think, it, you know, when I think about, oh, well, he's, he keeps saying he's not. But really, how would this look any other way? Well, so... Y'all remember back in the simpler times of 2017. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Days of your Jerry Brown was governor. Uh, and Amer so Donald Trump gets elected. He pulls out of the Paris um, Climate Accords. Jerry Brown, California governor, goes to China. And he meets with Xi, and they have these climate talks, and there are pictures. So I think to some degree we're re sort of reenacting that. Allegedly it was for climate talks and you know, sort of trying to come to some climate accords. I read there were six memorandums that they signed. I read a couple of them. They look like sort of chat GPT climate stuff. Like it's very, <laughs> we will consider and find alternatives to things that are bad for the environment. Just page after page of this kind of, these kind of promises. So, you know, really what did it accomplish? Not sure. Um, although, you know, the idea that he you know, took a, a plane to China when in, about two weeks, he, she and his whole crew is going to be here. Um, not a great look for climate concerns. But um, he, uh, he also did stop over in Israel briefly um, to view some videos and, and talk to, um, to the Israeli um, prime minister um, and then and sort of went over there. But it was, you know, if you look at Newsom, I mean, I actually, to get ready for tonight, I went on Twitter and I typed in Newsom and it was nothing but the basketball video. It was just hundreds and hundreds of gifs of him um, hitting that kid playing basketball. Are you, that, do you think that was planned? I don't know if he took a dive to like get some attention um, on on that kid, but it's, if you don't know what she's talking about, Google it. Yeah. So he's very tall, right? And and he but he and there's kids. They're they're very you know they're they're little. They're probably you know seven eight year old kids. Uh, and he's out there and he's twirl, twirling the basketball with his face trying to be like. Oh, and then he starts trying to. <laughs> 
to juke a little bit and like put some moves out. And he trips over, he basically lands on this little Chinese kid, big old Gavin Newsom, just like splayed out on top of this kid. And all the climate stuff is off the front page. Like it is, okay, if you go on Twitter, it's just, and literally just, it's nothing but that. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know, again, if he, if he just did it to get attention or, or if this is, a, you know, a terrible thing. But, um, but that's all that um, anyone wants to talk about with regard to the China trip. So, um, and again, however, uh, she and uh, some other uh, folks from China will be here um, for, the, um, uh, for a summit in, from November 11th to the 17th. So they will chat again, hopefully less violently, I guess. Here, here. Yeah. <laughs> John, what do you make of the trip? Uh, look, Gavin Newsom is a key contender for the presidency. He has made clear that he supports Joe Biden. He has made clear he will not run against Kamala Harris if that circumstance arises. But Gavin Newsom is the luckiest politician I have ever met in my life. He was my supervisor, uh, and then, of course, he runs for mayor, and then he runs for lieutenant governor, and then he's governor. And, you know, if his father were alive, I can tell you Judge Newsom would have been thrilled. But is Gavin a real contender? You bet. He's the governor of California. And I would remind you that every governor of California since Earl Warren has been considered a potential nominee of their political party for president. So I think Gavin is laying the groundwork. And may I be so bold as to say, if something should happen, if the Democratic race should be thrown wide open, which I think unlikely because of Kamala's role, Gavin Newsom would be the clear front runner for the Democratic nomination for president. Okay. Well, while he's still in office, he has been uh, doing other duties of his role, including appointing the uh, senator to take Senator Dianne Feinstein's uh, seat. Um, Am I going to pronounce this correctly? Is it LaFonza Butler? Yes. Middle name is Romanique. I didn't know that. Yes, LaFonza Romanique Butler, besides having the coolest name in Washington, uh, is the newest U.S. senator from California. Uh, thanks to her appointment. And Melissa, what do we know about her? Is, and, she, and she apparently says that she's not running for re-election. She is not running for re-election. Right. She's made it very clear. But there is talk about her having further, uh, seeking further uh, elected office. Any thoughts on her? Or well, she's, she's, uh, here's what you need to know. Her. She's from Magnolia, Mississippi, which I've never heard of, but that's like the southernest thing I've ever heard. She went to Jackson State and then gets involved in union politics and sort of gets her start from there. Um, she's one, she's an interesting character because she's somebody who's been around politics for a long time, but not a lot of people know her personally. She's been in the in the background of a lot of fights, it seems like, um, and and was most recently in Emily's List raising money for 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 women candidates, uh, and it's. Interesting that she's not running for re-election. I mean, I guess it should be, it's pretty late in the process to sort of start. A lot of folks who might have supported her have already pledged their support to other candidates, so I get that. Um, and, but she does seem to be really ambitious, uh, and so I wouldn't be surprised if this is not the last we've heard from her. She probably just looked around and between the fundraising um, problem that she would have and the endorsement problem, realized she couldn't get re-elected. Nobody just 
wants to spend more time with their family. And so I'm going to step down from the Senate, uh, from representing California in the Senate. Like, really? you only do that. No, <laughs> you only do that if you have read the tea leaves and you realize you you can't win. Uh, and so but that doesn't mean she won't go on to something else. Um, maybe some other. I mean, we've got another, you know, Gavin Newsom's termed out. I was going to say, I've heard the governorship tossed out there. <sighs> yes, yes. Um, where Which will be interesting because um, Eleni Kunalakis, who's the lieutenant governor, is also someone that has ambitions to the governor's office and is a big Emily's List recipient and right. someone that, uh, you know, that has really benefited from from Emily's List support. So having these these two maybe going going against each other for that would be interesting. But And Tony but, Thurmond, the state mm -hmm. superintendent of public instruction, mm -hmm. has announced he's running as well. Oh, he has already. Huh? For governor, yes. Wow. Okay. So, John, your thoughts on, on her, our, our, I guess, interim senator? Uh, an interim senator is a senator but with limited power. Power in the Senate is accumulated, uh, generally seniority. Uh, I don't know what her future plans are, but Gavin Newsom, again, maybe accidentally, pulled a master stroke. He said he'd put a woman in, a black woman in. He, his ideal was that that person would not run for a full term. So all of those points have fallen into play. Uh, I expect we will hear more from her, and you, again, hit the nail on the head, and that is she's the consummate fundraiser. And when I first heard her appointment, I said, makes perfect sense, she'll be able to raise the money. The problem is, as you pointed out correctly, uh, that uh, people are really committed. Barbara Lee has absolutely adamant support. There is no question that Adam Schiff has built a machine that has, frankly, raised a fortune and I think he is the odds-on favorite. And uh, there are others who are running, but nobody has achieved that distinction. So I agree she's a potential candidate for something, but who knows? After all, she'll always be a former United States senator. That's my title, too. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about local politics, then. And uh, I kind of a section I'm thinking of as the, the New London breed. Uh, if you've been following the headlines over the past few weeks, uh, San Francisco Mayor London Breed has put out there some proposals that have uh, definitely gotten criticism on her left flank, such as uh, drug testing for city welfare recipients um, and uh, expanded police powers. Um, Melissa, what do you make of this? Is this is this? I mean, so the New Yorker ran a column headlined "London Breed's Cynical Swing to the Right." Cynical, smart, what do you think? Reaction to actual reality <laughs> like also could be a thing. I mean, yeah, oh, look, uh, she believes, uh, look, the only reason any politician ever does anything is because they think it will get them reelected or keep them in office. I mean, that's okay. Is that cynical? I don't know, maybe. But uh, if, if the political winds have, have shifted this way and she understands that that's what her community needs and she wants to serve it up, then... That's what politicians do. Uh, and, you know, for, for a lot of folks, I think some of this comes a little late. I know there are other folks like Asha Safai and uh, Daniel Lurie have both said, you know, well, you're just doing this because we're running against you. And, you know, you're just trying to, uh, to, to keep yourself in office, to which I say, yeah, OK, <laughs> like, <laughs> we'll take that. And, and I'll tell you also, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard rumblings that there are other ballot measures in addition to the ones she's proposed. One is a police commission reform. Um, 
measure that would give police more um, sort of flexibility in their responses to things. Uh, the other is, of course, this testing requirement for, for benefits. The third thing is like a tax incentive for um, places, for buildings that convert into from commercial to residential. And so um, all things that I'm sure she has poll tested, I mean, her people are, are, are quite good uh, and, and are going to be popular, but there's going to be a lot more on the ballot as well. There are going to be some other, probably some structural changes, maybe some district uh, to citywide election changes, things like that. So it will be, they will be among some other, um, some other very serious things that people are considering because they are absolutely fed up with um, the state of affairs in San Francisco. Uh, John, another example of people being fed up and politicians perhaps saying things they wouldn't have said maybe five years ago. Governor Newsom talked about uh, now prosecuting fentanyl deaths as murder. Um, what do you make of this moment and what they're doing? Well, let's deal first with London Breed. Uh, as long as we have ranked choice voting in San Francisco, which I think is one of the most appalling things we have, uh, she is the odds-on favor to be reelected because she will be, if not the first choice, she'll be somebody's second or third choice. And I would remind you, Mark Leno would have been mayor of San Francisco had there not been ranked choice voting. Uh, number two, she is going to have the solid backing of the Democratic Party establishment. That includes Willie Brown, and that includes, by the way, Quentin Cop, who has endorsed her. So you get that cross-section. The odds of her losing, despite what I would call sev evident self, uh, not being very popular with a lot of people, uh, I think is very clear. Uh, in order to beat her, something would have to happen. The scandals that plagued her, including Nuru and the whole business with the Department of Public Works, have all faded from public memory. And I think that she is, no matter who runs against her, because of ranked choice voting, she will most clearly be the favorite to be reelected. And that would make her the longest serving mayor of San Francisco since Dianne Feinstein. And I would remind you the reason is because there's a two-term limit, but if you complete the term of your predecessor, that doesn't count as long as it's less than halfway through. So I think the betting is, but you have not mentioned the president of the Board of Supervisors. Hey, John, tell us about the president of the Board of Supervisors. <laughs> I'm on top of it. Well, there is a, a lot of talk that Aaron Peskin might run for mayor. And Melissa and I were talking, and you should certainly offer your comment. Uh, he would be an extremely entertaining candidate. And let me assure you one thing. Whatever people think of Aaron Peskin, there is no smarter operator in City Hall he, has, he served uh, two terms, then was termed out, ran again. He is a formidable force in city politics. And frankly, he has no place else to go. He's termed out again. So why not run for mayor? Now, I do hasten to point out that I was mayor of San Francisco in Youth in Government Day in 1966. And as I hasten to point out, the best run day in the history of San Francisco. <laughs> We were saying he'll certainly liven up the debate. <laughs> and I think that's going to be the key. But when I think pragmatically, and politics requires a certain amount of pragmatism, if there are no major scandals, if nothing terribly disruptive happens, the odds are that London Breed will be re-elected mayor. She offers something that people understand, familiarity. Whatever failing she has, people know who she is. And may I tell you, she has touched 
as you just pointed out, all the right bases. She's now appealing to the more, I don't want to say conservative, I don't think there's a conservative part of San Francisco, but <laughs> a more right of center San Francisco, then, and that, that's important because it means people who would not have been inclined to vote for her will now say, well, she's acceptable. And that's all it takes, perhaps, to win in San Francisco. But I want to be clear. If I were running for mayor, do away with ranked choice voting, go back to citywide elections to the Board of Supervisors, I would like to see an appointed Board of Education with confirmation by the voters. And frankly, I'd like to see the streets of San Francisco open. I've had enough of slow streets. And if you go to the DeYoung Museum and you try to get in there and you see what they've done to John F. Kennedy Drive or the Great Highway, boy, we need somebody who will stand up and say, no. And I can only tell you that's what's going to make the campaign very interesting. Uh, let's talk more campaign 2024 stuff. One of our questions from the audience is, uh, yes, Nancy Pelosi was an amazing speaker and very effective member of Congress, but why is she running again and not retiring? Oh, she brings tremendous force to the city. She is the consummate fundraiser. The Democratic Party needs her for that purpose. And I would suggest to you, I don't care what her age, she is remarkably effective. And Hakeem Jeffries is a good man. He really knows his stuff. But let me assure you, when Nancy Pelosi speaks, people listen. And she is one of the most remarkable political figures in American history. And I, I think that's very important. Uh, look, it's real simple, y'all. Like, power's a hell of a drug, right? <laughs> Who wants to just give it on back? Why would you do that? What, you know, what is she going to do? Go home and garden? Like, no, 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 no. She's, she's, shark's got to swim, right? Okay. She's going to stay there as long as she wants to, frankly. The voters will keep sending her back. But the day she announced, my husband and I were laughing. I was like, man, somewhere Scott Wiener is just like screaming. <laughs> I've been waiting. He's um, running for a third term. Yeah. So it's, uh, so I, I'm sure it was to the consternation of, of lots of folks who wish they could run for the seat. But, uh, but no, I, I, I don't see that uh, any time in her future. Okay. And you, just quickly to point out, the person she will favor is Christine Pelosi, her daughter. And what we're setting up is a contest between Scott Weiner and Christine Pelosi for that seat. And if you want to talk about divisions of the Democratic Party, you'll see them right here in San Francisco. Something to look forward to, folks. Um, speaking of challenges, uh, Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips is... Uh, is, is Who? Uh, Dean Phillips... Yep, you know about him as much about him as we knew about Mike Phillips two weeks ago, or Mike Johnson, Johnson. two weeks ago. But uh, he's announced a primary challenge to President Biden. So, Melissa, you first. What do you? I mean, who might just say it all? But uh, why does does a challenge? So there are people who are saying, you know what, a president should have a challenge. You know, an incumbent should have a challenge. It makes them tougher. It makes them kind of go through. Uh, you know, prepares them for a general election, blah, blah, blah. Look, I, I don't like the, par I don't like the two party duopoly 
as y'all well know. Uh, and I certainly don't like party machines. But here's the thing. If you're going to run and be like, I'm the challenger and that's healthy for democracy, like you have to disagree with the person you're running against a little bit. <laughs> like he's he's literally like, well, I'm just like Joe Biden. So why are you running? Like, help me out. He's got the with the Vivek Ramaswamy problem, which is like, why are you if you're that tight <laughs> in lockstep with Donald Trump? Why are you running? Uh, and so Phillips has the same has the same issue. And I don't so I don't think he would bring to the table what a challenger maybe like an RFK Jr. where there's lots of disagreement, like might actually bring and really force the other person to answer some questions. Um, it, it lacks anything that's useful and, and brings everything that's, that's kind of not. It's just kind of strange. I don't know what he's doing. John, Dean, help us. What are you doing? John, your thoughts on Dean Phillips? Dean Phillips is not Eugene McCarthy. McCarthy in 1960 nominated Adlai Stevenson of the Democratic Convention in 1960 and established a presence. He was a front runner for the Democratic nomination in 64. Johnson chose Humphrey instead of McCarthy. And when McCarthy ran in 68, he had a track record and the war in Vietnam. It was a major issue. If you really stop and you scratch down, what is Dean Phillips running against? He's running against the age of Joe Biden. And let me tell you, that is something we should be concerned about. We don't just elect a president. We elect a vice president who would succeed to the presidency. Uh, Joe Biden has been a remarkably effective president. If I were teaching a course on the American presidency, as I often do, I would say very clearly that Joe Biden has been a very successful president in terms of the implementation of what he said he was going to do. So what happens when somebody runs against you? He'll get crushed. But you know what he'll become? A footnote in American history. And you never know where lightning might strike. <laughs> <clears throat> who was the guy who ran with... Uh, you mentioned the name before. Matt Gonzalez. No, 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 no. <laughs> who ran for vice president. No, there, there was... Uh, whatever it was, 1920s. Oh, Burton K. Wheeler or yeah, Le okay. Robert A LaFall. footnote in history, sure. you know... That and four bucks. Yeah, by the way, let me say quickly, does anybody know here the last third-party candidate to be elected president of the United States? It was Abraham Lincoln in 1860. Third parties, and we could do a whole program on that, simply don't take off. So, but I, I must tell you, I think Biden will be renominated. I think Kamala will be renominated, and I think we are going to see, at some point. Uh, the Democratic Party go through the angst of what it will do without Joe Biden. But I think Kamala Harris is clearly in line, and I think Joe Biden will support her. And let me remind you, the connection there really goes back to Beau Biden, who passed away and who was the Attorney General of Delaware and had a very close relationship with Kamala Harris. So there are a lot of intertwining elements here that need to be considered. Okay. We've avoided it. We're going to get right into it right now. So Donald Trump's running for president. He's Really? He's, yes. He's campaigning largely from courtrooms. Um, <laughs> and maybe prison? Possibly. But, uh, let, I mean, let's get into some of that. I mean, it's... He's way ahead in the Republican, uh, I mean, field. I mean, unless lightning strikes, he's the nominee to face Biden, right? Yes. And let me point out that we once had a candidate for president of the United States who ran from prison, Eugene V. Debs, 1920, 
He had been the Socialist Party candidate for president. He was imprisoned for sedition, insurrection, if you will, and received a million votes running for president from prison and was never pardoned. He was granted clemency on Christmas Eve 1921 by a Republican president, Warren G. Harding. So I'm going to make a prediction to you. If something should happen and Donald Trump is convicted, I don't think he'll ever go to jail. I think the historic precedent of granting clemency, which is not a pardon, would be in line. But Donald Trump, and we could talk about him for hours, and I'm sure Melissa would love to chime in on this. No. I, as far as I'm concerned, it is the saddest commentary on America well, that he served as president. I mean, I think you have to put some blame on... Remember, he didn't win the popular vote. He did not win the popular vote. He won because of the Electoral College, and that's a whole other subject we could talk about. Yeah, as... Uh... Wait, wait, don't tell me, said at the Electoral College, the worst institute of higher education since uh, Trump well, you know, University. Dick, Dick, Nixon, um, Dick Nixon used to say in, after 1960 that he flunked out of college, the Electoral College. Melissa. Um, actually, I was, so one of the cases uh, that he's facing one is one of them. One, one, yeah, we should have a chart up here with, you know, the strings and the photos and the, all that's kind of like a perp chart. Uh, but... Uh, Judge Tanya Chutkin, who's overseeing the trial in the January 6th case um, against Trump, uh, has reimposed a gag order against him. I was wondering if you could give us some... People hear that, what does that actually mean? I mean, what, is that a serious thing? I mean, it, he's been fined some, I think, 5000 5, and 10000 10, pocket and, change. And then yeah. 10000 so yeah. it's two fines so far. Yeah. I mean, eh. <laughs> important, not important? Uh, well, I mean, look, he is a master of walking up to the line, sometimes crossing it. But, um, you know, they give him a gag order or you can't refer to this person. And he sort of then dog whistles about that person. So he'll always try to find a way to cross the line with and give himself plausible deniability. And and there is going to be a reluctance to put him in jail for violating gag orders, which he will definitely do, because then you just martyr him. Mm-hmm. Right. And so now he's, you know, he's the guy in jail. And what Eugene V. Debs did is he worked through his operatives. They would come and visit him and he'd write notes and they would take them out and say, Eugene says, da, da, da. And like, that's how he ran his campaign um, from jail. So it can be done. But but I, I think that people I, th- I think it's not like he, there's this. Anyone else would have already been in jail. I'll just say this. Like, saying the things that he's saying about the judge, about their staff, about the juries, about, you know, anyone involved in these cases, the opposing counsel, um, anyone else would have been in jail. But I think the reluctance with him is that you, you, you would sort of just feed the beast by doing that. So they'll continue to haul him in and try to give him fines and things, and they'll really bend over backwards. They might, if something really crazy happens, actually go there and just and go ahead and put him in jail for a day or something like that. But, but I think that they will really bend over backwards to avoid that as much as, as, much as possible because it would, just, it would just give him something else to, John, to climb. John, on your podcast this morning, you called former Vice President Mike Pence perhaps the last Reagan Republican um, noting, of course, that he has just announced his, uh, uh, he's dropping his long shot presidential bid. What about Pence's situation? What does that tell you about the GOP today? And, and well, I can tell you there will be a trial. Uh, the question of January 6th, and Mike Pence will be sworn in. Mike Pence is no longer running for president. He doesn't have to worry about whether the Trump people will vote for him. And if Mike Pence tells the truth, 
then what happened on January 6th will be the end of Donald Trump. And the same thing applies with Mark Meadows, who is now flipped. And so, let me tell you, I'm not a vindictive person. (laughs) But I am somebody who wants justice to be done. And the most important thing is not whether Donald Trump is punished. The most important thing to me is that history judges him. And when he is judged, with Mike Pence, I hope, being a key witness, he will be judged harshly and deservedly so. Eugene V. Debs was in jail because he gave a speech where he said uh, that poor people fight wars, essentially. That's right. Uh, and which is, you know. And so when you look at now, <laughs> versus, you know, and he went to jail for that, uh, not for a short time, um, for making that speech. Um, and, and now, you know, January 6th happens and, you know, We've got gag orders and fines, <laughs> and uh, well, you know, it's just such a such a, a strange change in the standard well, of what constitutes insurrection and what constitutes sort of uh, you know if, speech if, and things in violation or that undermine national security. If you've never read the January sixth report, buy it, read it, and I will always remember the chant: "Hang Mike Pence." And I will always remember the deafening silence which came from Donald Trump. It is a disgrace. So if Debs got um, pardoned or commuted. No, clemency. Clemency, Clemency. Clemency. excuse me. Um, I mean, it really all just goes back to Warren Harding being soft on crime. (laughs) (laughs) You could have set a different precedent. Write this down. Folks, that's our show. I want to thank our excellent panelists, John Rothman and Melissa Kane. All of you for coming here today and everyone who's watching and listening online. Have a happy Halloween and have a great week. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.